Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. What you hear in this podcast does not implicate any individual or entity in any criminal activity. The views and opinions are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. Previously on The Missionary. They're providing nutrition services to combat a crisis that literally the hospitals and others were unable to handle just due to the volume. When I moved there, there was a mentality of, you have two patients, which one has the better chance of life? This one, then this one you pick, and this one you leave. It's like you were color-coding people on a war field. I was fit. 
to like provide medical care and whatever. These things were over my head. Like this is serious, serious NICU, you level care. So based on the allegations you have heard that she was an unlicensed medical facility, that she was providing medical care without having medical qualifications, do these allegations surprise you given what you know about how NGOs operate here? Um, of course they don't surprise me. Jim Graham was 22 years old when he found a pamphlet recruiting young, healthy men to serve their country. It was November 1944, and millions of American men were going abroad to fight in World War II. But Jim was a conscientious objector. Instead of taking up arms, he found other ways to help by planting trees, fighting forest fires. But he wanted to do more. This call for volunteers sounded like an opportunity to provide a worthwhile service, not just to our country, but to all humanity. Jim volunteered to be a guinea pig in a study called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, run by Dr. Ansel Keys of the University of Minnesota. He was featured in a documentary by Colorado State University. We knew fairly well what a starved person looked like and what starvation did to the human body. But until this time, there had never been an opportunity to measure exactly what changes take place in the body under starvation conditions. Nor had there ever been any scientific test to determine what best to feed a starved person to bring him or her back to health. The project's goal? To learn how to treat starvation after the war ended. The experiment was fairly simple. 36 men were semi-starved for six months. Their diet was modeled after famine diets of bread, potatoes, porridge, and turnips. They continued walking at least 22 miles a week, taking classes in the university and working at the lab. Jim was six foot two, and he began the study at 175 pounds. But it wasn't long before the famine diet took a toll. Most of us suffered from edema, the collecting of liquid in the body, some more than others. I always woke up in the morning with my face puffy on the side I was lying on. Sometimes my ankles and knees were puffy. I'd look in the mirror and see that my eyes looked hollow. My cheeks were only a thin covering for the bones in my face and my hair was getting thinner. If I tried to smile, it was just a grimace, and I never laughed. As Jim and the other participants rapidly lost weight, some dropped to a mere 100 pounds, and the psychological changes mounted. Fatigue, depression, paranoia, symptoms that previously hadn't been attributed to starvation. We became very irritable and intolerant. Little things seemed to annoy us. We were no longer polite with each other or with visitors. It seemed as if the veneer of civilization had been removed, leaving bare the animal underneath. Years later, researchers would publish 1,300 pages on the scientific effects of starvation. The research remains key to a lot of what we know and still don't know about malnutrition. I have experienced hunger and the apathy and depression that goes with it. But we lived in sanitary quarters under the constant care of doctors. Furthermore, 
We knew that it would all be over on a certain date. I often think how horrible it would be to be starving and never know when it would end, if ever. In association with iHeartMedia, I'm Halima Gikandi. I'm Malcolm Burnley. I'm Rajiv Gola. And this is The Missionary, Episode 6, 105 Children. There are a few basic facts that everyone agrees on. Renee had run a health facility for malnourished children. It was unlicensed for years, and at least 105 children died. But those facts alone didn't support the worst of the allegations. That Renee was a baby killer. We've parsed through years' worth of Renee's blogs, social media posts, talked to missionaries and activists. But there hasn't been much else to support these accusations and allegations. It was obvious to me that there were more perspectives out there, more people we needed to speak with, a completely different world that we hadn't tapped into yet. That was Uganda's healthcare system and the near dozen medical staff who worked with Renee for years. I knew that I had to get into that world. The first time I traveled throughout eastern Uganda, passing by farms, huge plantain and cassava plants, pineapples, and sugarcane fields, I thought, how could there be severe malnutrition in a place like this? I'm Dr. Esther Babidekere. I am a pediatrician. I also have a PhD in clinical nutrition, and I am the head of Mwanamjimu Nutritional Unit, Mulago National Referral Hospital. Dr. Bobby Rekere has been working on malnutrition for more than 20 years, and the Mwanamajimu Nutrition Unit is the top children's nutrition unit in the country. About 1% to 2% of children, especially under 5 years of age, are severely malnourished. So it is that big. On average, we admit about 100 children per month with severe acute malnutrition just on one ward, the Manamujimu Nutritional Unit. So that is quite a big number. Malnutrition remains a complex, mysterious problem, especially for children in Uganda. There are quite a number of causes or predisposing factors to malnutrition. People are surprised why we have a lot of food and yet we have malnourished children. But these children may not be taking in adequate amounts and also the quality of the food and how is this food prepared. In Uganda, the main staples of today are mostly starchy foods like cassava and maize that lack a lot of vitamins that babies need. A lot of other countries have addressed this by fortifying or enriching their staple foods. In the U.S., wheat flour is often enriched with iron and folic acid. Table salt has iodine. But that hasn't happened much in Uganda. Food isn't the only factor either. Also diseases. We find some chronic diseases like TB or HIV or diarrhea diseases predispose the children to getting malnutrition. These combined factors were deadly for malnourished children. There's another oddity to malnutrition, too. 
Instead of becoming skin and bones, some children's bodies swelled, especially around their stomachs. It's an image that many Americans are likely familiar with seeing on the news, starving children with bloated bellies. The swelling is called edema, and it's similar to what happened to the adults under the Minnesota experiment. With some children, their faces can become so swollen as if they're having an allergic reaction. Their eyes get puffy. In Ghana, this is called kwashiorkor, meaning the disease of the displaced child. It mostly refers to when a baby is weaned prematurely after their mothers become pregnant again. Kwashiorkor also has local names in Uganda, Obwosi in Luganda and Lose in Lugisu. Experts like Dr. Esther Babarakere are still trying to research why certain children develop it and why others simply become incredibly skinny. Around the time that Rene had established serving his children, malnutrition was the direct cause of more than a third of deaths for children under five years old in Uganda, and malnourished children were nine times more likely to die than healthy ones. Even when children were able to get to hospitals like Imlago and be seen by experts, there was still a high chance they would die. I'll take an example of our ward, that is the Imlago, Wanamujimu Nutritional Unit. They come very late when they are critically ill with these complications and you try your best, but still about 10 to 20 percent may die. This is unacceptable and acceptably high. As grim as those numbers are, it's actually an improvement. Ten years ago, the mortality rate for children with severe malnourishment in Uganda was even higher. Sometimes between 20 and 25 percent of severely malnourished children died in hospitals. That was the scale of the problem. And that's why Uganda created a new system to build more health centers and clinics in hard-hit areas. Testing, testing. Okay. So could you just say your name um, and your profession? <laughs> okay, my name is uh, Dr. Hanifa Bachu. I'm a retired medical practitioner and a nutritionist. I worked in the National Hospital, Mulago Hospital, from uh, 1987 and then uh, moved on to the National Nutrition Unit, Mwanamungimu, where I worked until 2009. Then I moved into programming and have recently retired. Dr. Hanifa Bicho is another top child nutrition expert in Uganda. In 2009, the year Renee moved back to Uganda, Dr. Bicho had turned her sights on working with the Ugandan Health Ministry to create policies to address the child malnutrition problem. She was instrumental in developing Uganda's new national guidelines on managing these cases, a step-by-step manual. Up until then, treatment of severe malnutrition had mostly been centered around hospitals. What was wrong with that approach? Uh, the approach was not wrong, except that there were challenges. Uh, one is that uh, the caregivers would stay for very long and in far distance away from their families because those facilities were few. And also in the course of staying in hospitals, they would get cross infections. Yes. 
The plan Dr. Bachot helped create was to decentralize the care of severe and moderately malnourished children. The goal was to reach children who weren't accessing hospitals and to stop children from becoming severely malnourished in the first place. The community specifically is supposed to have a structure that identifies children with malnutrition and refer them early to the health facility. This model has been shown to reduce the mortality of child malnutrition. The idea was to move them up the pyramid of care as the cases got more complex. Children with moderate malnutrition could be treated outpatient, as in they go to rural health clinics for checkups and get nutritional formulas, but they stay at home. On the other end were severe cases of malnutrition, especially those with complications. These children were supposed to be enrolled in full-time inpatient care, but this was also a last resort for only the most intractable cases. Once a child's health was stabilized, they could be transferred back home for the rest of their treatment. If this sounds familiar, it's because these are the guidelines Renee says she modeled serving his children after, sending out social workers to teach about nutrition and screen for children with severe malnutrition in the villages, and then taking those sickest children back to their facility in Jinja. I asked Dr. Bachot which region was the worst in 2009, the year Renee set up serving his children. Uh, it was the uh, eastern region, eastern region, Namutumba. It was a real case of severely malnourished. It was really an emergency that the country had to move in to ensure that a nutrition unit was established. The name Namutumba sounded familiar. Later, I went through my notes again. And there it was, one of the children in the court case against Renee. His name, Tolale Kifabi. His village, Namatumba. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. 
All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We began this podcast and reporting this story with the court case against Renee. The fact that two Ugandan women were suing an American missionary over the deaths of their children, that, to me, was the most important part of this story— because it seemed like this was a rare opportunity for Ugandans to get justice. We had heard so many allegations, but these were the actual victims. Their stories were essential in piecing together what went wrong. Starting with the court documents that Renee submitted, I thought I could find material evidence that Renee was running this quack facility— now, Twalale is one of two children whose mothers are suing Renee Bach. He died after being treated at serving his children for seven days. His mother, Gimbo, was given 50,000 Ugandan shillings, less than $15 for her loss, and a bag of beans. We mentioned his story in episode one. In the court documents, Gimbo says, quote, "...the women from serving his children were not doctors." and may have done something unprofessional that led to the death of my child. Essentially, she thinks something went wrong, but doesn't know exactly what. Now, the lawyers say serving his children violated Twalale's right to life because the facility wasn't licensed at the time. 
The case also states that they violated his right to privacy because Twalale's photo was posted on serving his children's social media account. I managed to track down the health workers who oversaw Twalale's case. It was early 2013 when Twalale first became sick in his village of Namutumba. Namutumba is about an hour away from two major hospitals. The local health center diagnosed Twalale with malnutrition and directed Gimbo to buy nutrition supplements. This should have been a sign that the system was working. But according to Gimbo, she couldn't afford the medicine. So she returned to the village empty-handed. Sophie said those are the children Renee and her employees were trying to help. She didn't get children who were fine from the villages. She was getting children from the villages who were desperate to bring them and have at least for them to afford a smile. That's Sophie Mutesi, a midwife who worked at serving his children from around 2012 to 2015. She has a lot of experience bridging the gap between villages and hospitals. Twalale was a prime example of those gaps. Even when services are nearby, many Ugandans, especially the poor, face too many barriers to accessing them. Patients have to pay for basic supplies like gloves, gauze, bedsheets, medicines, even mats to sleep on. And they have to pay for that up front. Those who can visit the hospital can't always stay long. That's what made serving his children different. They paid for everything. By the time they reached the hospital, their need is not only treatment. The mother is stressed and has taken three days without eating, no soap, no everything, plus sickness. When she reached at Rini's place, they will comfort her, treat her psychologically, counsel her, even give her class, time for resting. In July 2013, Gimbo was pregnant with another child. By now, months had passed since they visited the health center, so Twalale's condition had likely gotten worse. Serving his children passed by Gimbo's village during one of their outreaches. The staff asked her to take Twalale to the facility in Jinja, so Gimbo sent her mother to go with Twalale. But this didn't seem to be the same serving his children that Jackie Kramlick, the American nurse and volunteer, had criticized. By now, the organization had heeded her warnings and hired trained nurses to join the staff. When Twalali arrived at serving his children, he was in really bad shape. He was severely dehydrated, his body was swollen, his skin was peeling, and his condition would only continue to worsen. Sophie Mutesi took care of Twalale on at least two shifts. According to her notes, Twalale was no longer able to eat the special formulas made for severely malnourished children, which is a bad sign. He also had diarrhea and was vomiting. Looking at her own notes, Sophie said that there was no difference between the food they were feeding him and what was coming out of Tolale's body. That was a very eh, serious comment. <laughs> Why, is that? Why is that serious for the rest no, of us who aren't medical? You know, like you are pouring milk here, it was the milk coming down, which means no digestion was taking place. Does that mean the digestive system just was isn't working? completely down, not working. Hmm? 
urinating well four times dehydrated continue with plan C rehydrate yogurt if chosen he spent a fair night so that was the end of your shift yes one of the early lessons of the Minnesota starvation experiment was that you have to be very careful about how you refeed or rehabilitate patients. Dr. Barbara Kere told me about something called refeeding syndrome. Refeeding syndrome is a phenomenon or a condition that occurs to malnourished children when you're beginning to feed them. They have had electrolytes that are imbalanced, that are not in right order. So when you begin to feed them, then that may worsen the condition. This causes a rapid crossing of some electrolytes into the cells, others out of the cells, and then that causes derangement in the body function, and then they may die. Here's Dr. Barbara Carey talking about the therapeutic milk products they use at Mlago and how they monitor it. The way we manage this or we prevent it is we use a feed usually. We call it therapeutic feed or it is like a medicine but in form of food. Uh, It has the right balance of these nutrients and we give it cautiously, slowly until the body is learning or beginning to learn to use these nutrients. Then we step up the nutrient value, especially the protein, and the energy so that now this baby or this child begins to gain weight again. So it is actually a serious killer if you are not using the right feeds in the beginning before the body function returns to normal. The special formulas she's talking about are F75 and F100, two powders you can mix with water developed in the 90s as an emergency treatment for child malnutrition. Refeeding syndrome is something that critics like Jackie said Renee was clueless about. But if you feed a child too much or the wrong type of substance too early, it can kill them. Even though Renee had access to these feeding formulas, which are normally distributed by UNICEF or the Ministry of Health, if a child is in danger of refeeding syndrome, they should be around specialists who can recognize it. In that case, I thought maybe Renee had failed to refer to Lale to a hospital when he should have been, which would have been a clear sign of negligence. But in the court case, Renee says she left the country the day Tualale arrived at the facility, and she submitted her passport pages as proof, which means in theory she wasn't there to make the hour-by-hour calls about Tualale. That decision would have fallen on the most senior person there, Mudasi Kayuza. As far as professionalism is concerned, she was employing the professionals, qualified people. That's what I knew. Oh, I know. She was employing professionals. They, they didn't have quacks there. Okay. Mudasi is a clinical officer who works at the Nalufenia Children's Hospital in Jinja. They're kind of in between nurses and doctors. They play a big role in filling the healthcare gaps because they can practice medicine, diagnose cases, perform surgeries, but they don't spend as many years studying medicine as doctors. Mudasi would come into serving his children a few times a week to check on the children, write prescriptions, and sometimes refer them to the hospital. Actually, when I found him, he was working at the hospital. These are doctor's notes. Do you recognize these? Yeah, this was my handwriting. 
I had him read over the notes on Tolale's case. Then I asked him if there was any sign that he had requested that Tolale be referred to the children's hospital. He didn't. He thought serving his children was managing the case fine. This one, this one was, uh, was tolerable. You would do, you'd manage. That's why when you look at these records, they were saying well, there's some improvement. Eh? The new complaints were not there. Yeah, so looking unstable. Days later, on July 16, 2013, Tolali died of severe malnutrition. I asked Dr. Pichot to read over Tolale's medical documents as a second opinion to see if there were any irregularities, any sign of misconduct, anything that went wrong. Reading what, you know, how he examined the patient, came up with a tentative diagnosis, and then written the, the treatment protocol, I think he must have had some, you know, background, yeah, of managing this case. Is there any point so far where this child should have been in a hospital, do you think? I, I don't know. I, I don't want to commit, but, the, but then it's, this child was put on oxygen, this child was put on IV, this child was, you know, put on uh, antibiotics, IV antibiotics, and was being monitored. So not knowing the situation at then, I would assume that this is a health facility with the trained health workers. What if it's me? She has all this uh, sophisticated uh, medical equipment and she is not trained. Who, who decides when to take action and what action? I was just as baffled as Dr. Bachot. Initially, I thought by tracking down Falale's journey, I would find the prime example of Renee's medical misconduct, whether she had done medicine herself or made decisions that had led to Twalale's death. But Twalale's case hadn't done that. In fact, it showed the opposite, that Renee had hired qualified Ugandan nurses and medical professionals, at least by 2013. It showed that they were the ones who had treated Twalale and didn't bring him to the local hospital. Ultimately, it showed that Tolale had died despite their best efforts, because severe malnutrition is so hard to treat at that stage. That makes Tolale one of at least 105 children who died at serving his children. And I keep thinking back to that number. We've talked about it throughout this podcast. 105 children died. I mean, it's shocking every time I hear it. And remember, those are just the numbers that Serving His Children admits to, and they provided them a couple years ago. And given the inaccuracies in their documentation, that number could be way higher. We don't have the medical documents of the other children who died at Serving His Children. That said, the number 105 still seems like a lot to me. Here's the math. Between 2010 and 2015, 105 children out of 940 who were treated inpatient at serving his children died. That's a mortality rate of 11%. 
but that's nearly half the mortality rate in Uganda's top hospital. After learning about how hard it is to treat severe child malnutrition, that number doesn't look as bad as it did in the beginning. Based on that number alone, it could be tempting to say that serving his children helped save more children from malnutrition than had died. But there's one obvious caveat that we can't forget. Even though Twalale had gotten quality care from quality Ugandan medical professionals, when he died, serving his children was still an unlicensed facility. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. 
So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wake up, wake up, Africa, your time has come. Open up your eyes and see the sun. Open up your spirit. Hello and welcome to Africa Watch on the Dr. Mumbi Show. My name is Dr. Mumbi Saraki. How are you doing? How's everything going? I pray you're well in everything, everything. I just hope everything is going absolutely fantastically for you and you're living your best life. Now, I've got a story that got me just... I even wanted to just throw this at someone, for real. It got me so emotional. And it's all about this uh, fake-ass, you know, white supremacist doc- She ain't even a doctor. Uh, who had- this YouTube show aired on February 5th, 2019, when the news of Renee Bach and serving his children was just starting to spread online. She wasn't deported. She wasn't charged. The health ministry in Uganda didn't launch any kind of investigation against her. And she's still in Uganda till this day. It's crazy. So what they're doing now is they're demanding that... uh... This question has nagged me throughout the story. In the past year, I learned Uganda does have a lot of rules and regulations that are sometimes complex and bureaucratic, but they're there. So how had Renee been able to buy and procure medicine for years? To coordinate blood transfusions, get lab tests, order specialized nutritional formulas, and eventually hire legitimate staff, all without a license. We couldn't both say that Uganda had laws and regulations that Renee hadn't followed without recognizing that someone was responsible for enforcing them. Could you introduce yourself? Oh, I'm Dr. Katumba Shentong. I'm the chief executive of Uganda Medical and Dental Council. It's a government body which is in charge of uh, regulating the practice of doctors and their facilities. I'm in Dr. Sentongo's office in Kampala. It's not too far from the country's biggest hospital in Lago. Dr. Sentongo is one of those matter-of-fact expert types. He just doesn't beat around the bush. He told me he hadn't heard about these latest accusations that Dr. Mumbi was talking about against Rene Bach or serving his children until he got a call from the Minister of Health. Because the minister saw that video running, I had not seen it. So she wanted to know the issues to do with that facility. So we went there and produced a preliminary report. So now he had to get to the bottom of it fast. Dr. Sentongo assembled a three-person team to go out and investigate the claims against serving his children. Dr. Katumba tried to find other people who had worked at serving his children in Jinja or the mothers in the court case, but they didn't find them and they had limited funds to continue investigating. 
So we didn't get opportunity actually to get details at what happened the former clinics because uh, unfortunately we couldn't get the doctor. We also didn't have contact of uh, the people who had complained. I had some better luck and more time to track down some of these folks. I knew that there were plenty of nurses and doctors involved with serving his children over the last 10 years, but only a handful were part of the actual court case. They would have seen firsthand how things had worked there, and it seemed like no one else was talking to them. Not the lawyers, not the media, and not the government investigators. After months of poring over court documents and medical databases and crisscrossing the country on buses and motorcycles, I managed to track down eight nurses, three doctors, a nutritionist, and a medical officer who at one point or another had worked at serving his children. But only a few were willing to go on the record about their time there. It was easy to see why they wouldn't want to get involved in this mess. After all, if something wrong had happened at serving his children and they didn't report it, they could lose their licenses. But one of them, a nurse named Violet, was willing to go on the record. So I'm on the way to Kigadi, which is a town that's in western Uganda, close to the border with the DRC. And I'm searching for a nurse named Violet. So I called her a few days ago and explained what we're trying to do. Um, It's a Sunday, so I'll probably have to wait for her to get out of church. Violet Otto Beatrix had worked at serving his children in 2012 for about six months. She's now a government nurse on the opposite side of the country, about eight hours away from Jinja. When we met at a hotel, I realized she hadn't heard anything about the case. She was exactly the kind of source I wanted to speak with. When I just got there, nothing much was told to me about how the organization started. But being someone who is looking for a job, someone who is jobless, I just took on. They didn't tell me that whoever opened that organization wasn't experienced medically. Violet told me she had her reservations about serving his children. She had a lot of experience working at big NGOs like Doctors Without Borders, but she didn't think she and her fellow nurses were equipped to deal with extreme cases of malnutrition. And she was a trained midwife, but also didn't think they were equipped to have women giving birth there. Violet knew her own limits, but didn't think Renee knew hers. I would see her read. She would read through books, and then she would apply. You would see her reading medical books? I would see her read medical books and then apply, and then she would, she would do the medical, the nursing, yeah? The treatment, all that, yeah. Violet agreed line by line with what Jackie Kramlick, the American nurse, had said Renee did— Blood transfusions, IVs, intramuscular injections, spinal taps, femoral artery punctures. So here was someone who categorically thought Renee had done wrong. This is the type of person who could have said something at the time. I asked her if she did. There's no I would say, but please, I want to see your papers. But please, where is your certificate displayed here? There was no way I would ask that. Why not? Well, it would look like I'm attacking her. When I entered there, I saw her actions. She acted a medical person. She introduced everything to me, and we started practicing together with her. 
So I kept it to myself and I'm like, after all, I won't work here for long. Violet told me that government nurses like her make about $100 a month. She needed the job at serving his children. This was something I had heard from other former employees, too. They said the nurses were too subordinate to say anything. So I wondered, what about the doctors? We need a doctor, plain and simple. A doctor who can be there in emergencies, give direction to our nursing staff, and provide an in-house diagnosis for the many complications that come with severe malnutrition. In May 2012, a year before Talale's case, Renee put out a blog post asking for donations, $22,000 so she could hire a doctor and a nutritionist. A doctor who can come alongside us as we strive to save the lives of children that face the horrible reality of malnutrition. A doctor who shares our passion for serving the Lord. Until she hired that full-time doctor, she had other doctors coming in periodically. One was Dr. Alex Wasomoka, who came in a few times a week. He worked at serving his children for about six or seven months in 2012. Now he's a doctor at Jinja Hospital. And when he looked back at serving his children, he saw nothing but things to be proud of. So there was no time, not even a single time, when there was no nurse to attend to the children. These children were actually treated in the best way, I could say, the best way possible. In his view, sometimes kids were better off at serving his children than the hospital. It was well-equipped and had a steady supply of oxygen, which many hospitals often run out of. And it was small, so it had a good nurse-to-patient ratio. Uh, when I compare that with uh, what was in the hospital, you know, in the hospital, the numbers were so enormous. The nurses in the hospital are few, so they could not attend to all the children in time and as required. You know, when uh, the, the nurse-patient ratio is not uh, proper, then even the quality of care drops because the children were too many compared to the staff available. Dr. Wasamoka wasn't the only one who thought this. I spoke with at least two other doctors who had worked part-time at serving his children, who thought the facility overall had done a good job. So did nurses like Sophie Mutesi, who you heard from earlier. It was exactly these sorts of competing narratives that had stumped Dr. Katumba's investigation. He had heard news about Renee killing hundreds of kids, performing medicine, trampling on Uganda's rules. But then, when he managed to visit serving his children's brand new facility, less than two hours outside of Jinja, he found staff who were properly licensed, a facility with all of the right paperwork, and an administration that was going by the book. Where were all of the dead kids? The main complaint was in the Ginger district, unfortunately. So we wrote a report and we told the minister that uh, that was our limitation, that we couldn't find the complainants for the Ginger site. The issue was that all of the accusations against Renee were made about work she had done at an old facility in Jinja. The team didn't have the time or resources to investigate claims at a facility that no longer existed. And even if they did, they would have probably heard the same conflicting things that I did. 
The report they submitted concludes this, that they are unable to support allegations that children died in large numbers due to serving his children, and that they found no evidence that Renee Bach was treating children. The report was released, but the case was kept open in case any additional evidence or sources ever came forward. The experience that Dr. Sintanko had, I think, speaks to how this whole story has unfolded. We had entered the story with huge, big, scary, outrageous testimonies about Renee and what she had done, the number of children that had died, the court case. But so far, a lot of that evidence wasn't actually supporting the worst of the allegations. In fact, if anything, it suggested that it wasn't as bad as we thought. But what had become crystal clear to me was that there had been a bigger structural failure that goes well beyond Renee. And this mattered to me as somebody who has covered health and human rights in the region. Because at the end of the day, Renee is only one person. NGOs like Serving His Children had been encouraged, allowed to operate in Jinja for years. They were able to interact with other hospitals and facilities and and pharmacies. And despite the fact that, yes, Uganda is a country with laws and regulations, those same laws and regulations hadn't managed to regulate her. And staff who were licensed, who were credible, hadn't stopped it either. Next time on The Missionary. I just couldn't understand how people could look at the same evidence we were looking at and come to such different conclusions. And I said, but sir, these kids will die if we send them home. And he said, you're right, they will die, but it's no longer your problem. So get them out of here before five o'clock or I'm taking you to jail. I remember I would walk into like cafes and people would leave when they saw me. Like I went to like missionary events and people would like refuse to speak to me. And this was my sort of aha moment. This was my wake up call that I had been lied to directly to my face. The Missionary is produced in association with iHeartMedia. It's written and reported by Rajiv Gola, Halima Gikandi, and Malcolm Burnley. It's produced by Michelle Lands and Ryan Murdoch. Mark Lotto is our story editor. Our executive producer is Mangesh Hatikudur. Our fact checker is Austin Thompson. Mixing by Josh Rogerson. And voice acting by Taylor Kaufman. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. 